Good morning. It's good to see you and welcome to Grace. It's not in the bulletin, but if you would, please turn to page 845 in the back. We're going to confess our faith together by using the words of the Apostles' Creed. So turn back there to page 845. And while you're getting there, I want to remind, especially the youth group tonight, we'll be sharing our target words that we've chosen for the year and for the uninitiated. The target word is this idea that I got from a pastor I work with in California. And we choose a word that represents a spiritual goal for the year. And each student chooses a verse to go along with that word. And it's something that each of us focuses on throughout the year. We pray for each other. We support and encourage each other so that we're growing in our faith and staying focused, not just on our uh, physical goals or different, I don't know, worldly goals, but that we're focusing on growing in Christ. So I encourage you, if you haven't done that yet, to make sure that you've chosen your word. And this is something that even the rest of the congregation can get involved with, too, that you would be focused on growing this year. And I even have a sheet that helps us fill that out. So if you want one, let me know. But now, if you've got the Apostles' Creed open before you, let's read this together. So I'll ask the question, what do you believe? And then we'll read together. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now back in your bulletin, we have a congregational confession of prayer. So let's pray this prayer out loud together. Lord God, eternal and almighty Father, we acknowledge and confess before your holy majesty that we are poor sinners. We have been conceived and born in guilt and corruption. We are prone to do evil and unable of ourselves to do any good. We, by reason of our depravity, transgress without end your holy commandments. Therefore, we have drawn upon ourselves by your just sentence, condemnation and death. But, O oh Lord, with heartfelt sorrow, we repent and deplore our offenses. We condemn ourselves and our evil ways with true penitence, beseeching that your grace may relieve our distress. Please, Father, have compassion upon us. O most gracious God, Father of all mercies, for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, remove our guilt and our pollution, and grant us the daily increase of the grace of your Holy Spirit. Touch us, Father, with your Holy Spirit, and work true repentance in us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters, that was the bad news that we've sinned against a holy God deserving of his wrath and condemnation. But the good news that you came for today is the gospel, the promise of salvation. So hear and receive this promise from Psalm 106. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Yet he saved us for his name's sake that he might make known his mighty power. So, brothers and sisters, God is glorified in forgiving you, in saving you, in forgiving your sins, and to transforming you into one and a family that pleases him. That when Jesus, when the Father sees you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. So trust in him, look to him in hope and in confidence. Again, I hope that you brought your Bibles with you and are prepared to follow along as we work together and begin our new direction and journey of faith 
through the Psalms of Ascent. If you've never been through them, they're each one individual, and they each help us along the journey of encouragement and characteristics of the Christian faith to help us where we need to be. And so we will be in Psalm 120 to begin, and each week from here on, I will, if I am preaching, take the next Psalter or Psalm clear up into Easter is about when it will finish. And so around Easter, we will journey and experience the climbing of the Christian faith no different than what the early Jews did as they climbed to Jerusalem. So let me read, and uh, then I'm going to give you some background to this first sermon about what the Psalms really are and how they work. And then I want to take you on a journey, if I can, this morning on what it really takes to begin growing in a relationship with Christ, what it really takes to begin understanding what God wants for you in your life, what it really takes if you're going to become what it is God wants you to be. Just being in church is not enough. Just saying you're a Christian doesn't cut it. I'm hoping that as we go through the Psalms of Ascent, you will be challenged to experience the things that all the Israelites experienced on their journey as Christians to go and worship. So listen in Psalm 120. Let me read it, and then I'll come back to expound on it, to exegete it, to exposit it as we go forward. As the song of ascents begin in Psalm 120, it says this, verse 1. In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. It's the cry of a song that has become sung by those who journeyed together to Jerusalem. The Psalms of Ascent are those that when they were gathering together for the different feasts of the year, they would begin to sing and celebrate and journey together and sing these as encouragements to each other to not give up, to not give in to not lose focus and to come and repent and to bring a sacrifice of praise, a sacrifice for cleansing. You might ask, what were these feasts that they would go for? So let me just clarify. There were three main feasts every year that they would go to. There were more feasts. But in the spring, catch this, folks, three times a year, they would begin in the spring as they would journey to Jerusalem to worship and bring sacrifice at the Feast of the Passover. And it would be there in the summertime that they would meet again and they would journey together up to Jerusalem where they would meet at the Feast of Pentecost. And then again in the fall or autumn, they would make that journey again up to Jerusalem during the Feast of the Tabernacles. You see, three times a year, the Lord had designed it and the people were obedient to realizing that if they were going to grow in their faith, it would have to be together, journeying with others up to the place God has called you. Folks, it's not my words, they're God's. When he calls his people to his presence, there's a reason we gather together. There's a reason we assign times. There's a necessity in our lives to be encouraged by others, to walk alongside others, and to face the same tasks along the journey so that we can make it. And three times a year, now, don't leave today and say, well, pastor said I only have to come to church thrice. That's not what I mean. But what I mean is, folks, they journeyed from their homes uphill. That's the whole point of the ascent. It was a journey because Jerusalem was on the highest point of the hill. It would be from the surrounding towns where people lived that they would journey however many days it took to get to the highest point. It was a climb. It was an uphill battle but it was worth every moment to be in a right relationship with Jesus Christ. It reminds us in the New Testament in Philippians, when we get to chapter 3, listen to verse 14 when Paul writes this, 
I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Folks, that's what was taking place in the Old Testament, if you wish, because Jesus hadn't come yet. They were still offering sacrifices, but it was that upward call in God that people journeyed toward. It was that personal relationship of getting to know God that mattered. Now, I've heard many writers say to that, to, to others, that part of the discipleship journey is that God wants to get to know you. Folks, there's a problem with that. I want you to think about that for just a minute. The journey of discipleship and ascending to Jerusalem and offering sacrifices and giving him praise and learning his will is not that God can get to know you. It's so that what? You can what? Get to know him. God already knows you, folks. I don't know if you've had a twisted theology given to you before, but God doesn't need anything to know you any better. He created you from before the foundations of the world. He knows every hair on your head. He knows every need. He knows every situation you've been through. He's planned and prepared it so that everything works together exactly at the time in which it is needed so that he can pierce your heart, convict you of sin, change your heart's desires, and you'll cry out to him and you get to know him. That's what discipleship is about. Us getting to know the Father. So the Psalms of Ascent challenge us on this spiritual journey, and here's why. Because most of us, when we begin our spiritual journey, are the farthest from the goal that we'll ever be. It's not that we just say, well, you know, I'm going to be a Christian, and tomorrow I'll be there. It's a lifelong journey. It takes multiple opportunities in life. It's year in and year out. It's the repetition. It's providing things so that it makes a difference in your life. If I asked you to raise your hand this morning and said, how many of you get tired of saying the Lord's Prayer together? You'll be amazed as a pastor how many times I've had people say, but that's so monotonous. It's like routine. It's like it doesn't even mean anything. We just say it and it doesn't mean a thing. Folks, there's value in routine. Because I promise you on the time in which you get scared and in the time in your life when one of your family member gets sick and the doctor says there doesn't seem to be any hope or it's your parents or grandparents in which they think I think this is the end of the line in which you find yourself falling down in a place that you didn't expect to be and you begin to pray what? The words that were always so routine that have now become so meaningful because they've become a part of your life. That's why we recite creeds, confessions. That's why we learn the truths. You may not know every scripture there is, but the point of the teaching of repetition is it becomes a part of your life. Oh, I don't know how many times you would look at your spouse and say, would you stop telling me you love me? Because that's just routine. I don't know how many times your children, when you go to give them a hug, you'd stop and say, no, nah, I don't want to hug you because that's just It won't mean anything. So why is it in the relationship with God we look at things that are routine? is not being worthy. You see, the Psalms of Ascent were over and over. There's many songs that they made. And it's because the discipleship journey, the new direction that I want you to take this year, the opportunity to know God more, is not instantaneous. I know we live in a society in which people go to church on Christmas and Easter. We still live that same generational structure forever. It's almost as if we just go on Christmas and Easter that we'll get what we need to make it through the rest of the year. We'll grow just enough and maturity is exactly where God wants us. But let me take it a step further. For some of us, the Christian journey has only become a Sunday morning worship service. And you're also not going to mature that way either. You see, we can try to put it in the number of times we meet and that's not how we grow. It's in the opportunities that we have throughout each week, throughout every service, throughout every event. Discipleship is an ongoing, repetitive, learning and relational aspect that we have to get to know Jesus Christ. That's the whole point of the Psalms of Ascent. You see, it's easy for me to get people interested in the gospel. As I've shared with you many a times, it doesn't take much to stir your interest. Let me give you just one quick example. If I stood here this morning and opened my heart, as I have for many of you already, and said to myself, 
when someone comes in that I'm a young earth creationist and believe the Bible is inerrant and completely true, some of you might go, huh? And if I said to you that I really believe that Jonah was actually in the belly of a fish three days, as Jesus quoted when he said, as he would be in the grave, so he would be in the fish, you might go, huh? You see, I can stir your interest. People are always ready to discuss because they really don't know what's in scriptures. The problem is, I can create an interest in the gospel. I just can't sustain it. Because we live in a generation of this instantaneous gratification. And so it's easy to bite on something that's new. But to keep your interest. You see what happens in the gospel now is so many people will come to the gospel. And they want to be a part of the gospel. And they're willing to try the gospel. And they're interested in the gospel. Until when? Anything else comes along that's new. You see, we've been so tickled in society that the next new thing is what gets us. That's why we can look at some of the major corporations in the world. I'm not here to preach against Apple or Microsoft or all the phone companies. But isn't it amazing? You can come out with the next iPhone 25. And the moment they release it, it's next December. They're coming out with what? iPhone what? 26. And folks, the point of it is they've got us in gratification to where we're just ready for the next new thing. There's no more being involved in commitment. There's no more being the stick to There's no more longing through the excitement of what you have and the things that you've been given. We always want something else. The Psalms of Ascent take us back to the journey where they're being written to help us to stay faithful to what it is that we have begun, to stick to what it is that we know works, to be able to not give up and to be detoured on the relationship that we know matters. The songs of ascent were there to be sung as songs to encourage us to be faithful. Yet we're doing that in a world whose mindset is more of a tourist. I read an article one time and a pastor said, I'm tired of being a tour guide. People show up at the church and they expect me to take them on a quick tour of what it means to be a Christian. Show them the quick program, show them what the church is like and how it works, and to maybe put on a great sermon or a Christmas program or an Easter show or a, a Valentine banquet or a fall festival. And you see, we're, we're entertaining the world because what they want is a quick fix. They want to be treated as a tourist or even more so, they just want to enjoy the church when they have a little extra leisure time to come and see what it's like. But to commit... Folks, please don't leave today and say the pastor's preaching at me. I don't follow you around. I do keep attendance every Sunday morning. No, I don't. Except for a few of you. But no, the truth of it is, it's a journey. The Psalms of Ascent remind us that holiness and Christian maturity is something that is not obtained quickly. It's the journey in a relationship with Christ where we're constantly learning every step of the way. But for so many of us, we're all guilty of fitting Christ into our schedule, fitting church into our schedule, fitting the opportunities into our schedule. And we're only growing this much in our relationship with Christ. And so he challenges us about this. Listen to Hebrews Chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, we have such a great cloud of witnesses that surround us. These are the people who are journeying to Jerusalem. They're the people that are listed in Hebrews 11. These are the people that were being faithful to serving God and not, never giving up, never lo losing focus. Three times a year, back to repent. Let me ask you guys, have you ever just taken one opportunity to repent to just simply say, Lord, I'm caught in a situation I don't need to be. I'm living in conditions that I should not be living in. I'm facing opportunities and things that I shouldn't even be facing. Lord, I repent. I want to change. I want to go back. I want to be renewed. Three times a year they had that opportunity. And yet you have it every minute of every day with an open access to the throne of grace because of Jesus Christ. There should be no reason you're not learning more about Jesus. Hebrews says this, because of this, let us lay aside every weight and sin. 
which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The Psalms of Ascent, this journey to maturity, is so that we have a new beginning, a new relationship, and more importantly, a new direction. For those of us who are Christians, I'm not asking you to get saved again. That's not how it works. I'm not asking you to reunite a relationship that you've never had. I'm asking you to take where you are and get focused on the direction God wants you to go. Wherever you are, take yourself up. Raise it a notch. Get closer to God, just as they would get closer to Jerusalem. They would get anxious about the meeting. They would get excited about the time of the festival or the feast. And they knew that they were going to get blessed. But I will remind you that repentance is the only way to go forward. And if you're going to go forward, hear me clearly. As my friends would say sometimes, right? Hear me. If you're going to go forward, there's going to be some things that must be left behind. You cannot carry the sin that so easily weighs you down and expect to climb to Jerusalem and be with God. You must lay it aside, whatever it is in your life, so that we can now enjoy the Psalms. If I can use it as an entry, I read a story, I couldn't tell you the whole thing, it's been years, but let me explain it as I begin to exposit on the passages here of Psalm 120. Let me use it as an intro of what the Christian life and the change of direction entails. If I remember the story right, I'll ad-lib it, but he said the Christian life and the changes that are made are like a trapeze artist. Does anybody know what that is? You see, what we lost most about the circus is not all the animals and not all the pizzazz, but the swinging trapeze artist. Because it was the understanding that this person would swing back and forth, and you knew that the only way they were going to make it to the other side is, catch this, they would have to let go of what they've been holding on to and able to grab and hold on to where they need to be. And the Christian life for the psalmist is when that trapeze artist was in between the two. There was excitement. There was danger. There was uncertainty. We weren't sure what was going to happen, what was going to be accomplished. Was it just going to be a simple transition? Was there going to be a flip? Was there going to be someone else involved? Do you see they were saying what happens on the Psalms of Ascent? is that when you're willing to let go of living your life and holding on to the things that have always held you back, it's the scariest thing in the world to let go of all the things in this world you've been hanging on to and to face the uncertainty for the time in which it takes for you to be grabbing the other side and being taken in to where God wants you to be. Yes, that's right. In the time in which you let go of the world... The uncertainty, dangers, and expectations of when you start living by the Spirit. Yes, when you let go of wish you say the law and living according to works, and now beginning to grab what the new direction is of living by faith and trusting in His Word. Yes, the uncertainty is when you finally leave the life of sin and self and face the uncertainty of that grip of grace that's going to grab you and hold you and take you to holiness and maturity. That's the Psalms of Ascent. And the psalmist begins when he simply says this, well, what do you mean, pastor? What does it mean to repent? Let me take you on the journey. He says, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. Write this down. If you're going to understand repentance, you must recognize your dependence on the Lord. The reason he calls out, if you wish, in distress is because he, the Lord has helped him in the past, and now he's returning and calling upon the Lord again. He is only calling to the Lord because he knows the Lord answers. He's only calling to the Lord because he's been helped in the past. You see, repentance is going back to what it is that you know works. It's realigning your mind. We've said this before. Metanoia is the Greek word. 
It means to agree with your mind, to change the mind. That's the word. Metanoia is the nine. And with the mind, repentance is not about how you feel. Repentance is not about excitement. It's about agreeing with God. Changing your mind to agree with God. That's repentance. And so the psalmist cries out in this distress. Now, sadly for most of us, I say this gently. Please listen. The psalmist cries out because he's met the Lord before and he helped, and now he trusts he'll do it again. Now mark this in your mind. The sad part for most, for most Christians is the first time we encounter the Lord is many times also the last. The first time we encounter the Lord is many times also our last. In other words, we think, hey, he saved me, and now it's done. There's no more need for anything else. There's no more growing. There's no more journey. There's no more challenges. There's no more excitement. I can do what I want. I'm saved by grace, and your first encounter is also your last. If you want another encounter with Jesus, the Bible says you must what? Repent. It's not a bad word. It's the word that says, wherever I am in life, I need to call upon the Lord so that he once again can bring me back. He once again can heal me. He can deliver me, and my dependence can be on the Lord. He cries out in the distress. Well, what is distress? Folks, if you don't understand that, some translations may maybe have a different word. We're not talking about stress. We're talking about distress. Do you know what the difference between stress and distress is? About 10,000 times worse. That's it. It begins as stress, but it becomes what? Distress. It becomes an overwhelming anxiety. It becomes the time in your life in which you just can't go farther. You just don't see a way out. You just don't see how it's going to get any better. You just don't see how you can make it. And so you cry to the Lord for deliverance. Because distress affects us emotionally. You can't be happy. You can't enjoy things if you're living imprisoned in a situation that you cannot see a way out. It affects you physically. It changes your life completely. Your health. When you think you're stuck, you can't get help. And it affects you relationally. I don't know how many marriages have ended over distress. Things aren't right. They're just not working. I don't see how to change it. I don't know any other way. I encourage you to call upon him. And then spiritually, nothing ruins a relationship with the Lord more than when you don't commune with God and you're anxious about your future, and you don't know where you're going to be, and you don't know whether or not you're saved. And the psalmist cries out, and he says, I did it in distress, and the great thing is the Lord what? He answered. He doesn't leave us suspended in the middle. When you leave the one side as the trapeze artist, it's because there's confidence that the other trapeze bar is there. You wouldn't let go if you didn't think it was there. You would just keep swinging longer on one side. Do you see the analogy? Some of us are still swinging on the side of the world because we just haven't got to the point in our conviction, in our understanding, that we can let go of the things in this world. God will be there. He's never not been there. And you can now live in a whole new direction on a whole other side, trusting God through the faith that he's given you to follow him. So the psalmist says, in my distress, I recognized my dependence on him. So what does he say? Deliver me, Lord. The Hebrew word for deliver is the word natsel. It's used in different ways throughout the scriptures. But in Hebrew, the, here in the second verse, he's using the same word that means I need to be taken out of. I need to be taken from this. I need to be delivered. I need to be rescued. The, words that we, the same words we get in the New Testament in relationship that when Jesus would come, he would save us from our sins. That's the analogy, that I will be delivered from my distress. 
Only one can do it, and that's God. He uses this phrase, listen, deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. And what shall be given to you? And what more shall be done to you, O deceitful tongue? Twice, repetitive. He's been hurt, he's been burned, or better yet, let me give you this. It's also true in the Hebrew that it's reflexive. Which means he's not just saying, Lord, deliver me from what other people are doing. What he's saying is, Lord, I need to be delivered from my deceitful tongue. I need to be delivered from the harm that I'm causing others and myself. Oh, the problem is not always with someone else. It affects us greatly, but here in verse 2, we're realizing that he himself is following the father of lies. That's who Satan is. And maybe you've believed those same lies. That's why it's a deceitful tongue. The actual word there that is translated over deceitful tongue is for deception many times. So let me ask you this morning in your Christian life, have you been deceived? Have you been living the Christian life in deception? Have you been listening to lies? Have you been listening to what your parents have said about you? And maybe they haven't said the most wholesome things. I don't know why I even try with you. I've done everything I could. You're on your own. You want to go your direction, you go. I'm tired. I'm fed up. Those are the things I said to my wife. But those are the things we hear from others. Those are the things that we hear that come out of people's mouths and we believe it. You're no good. You idiot. How could you think that way? Why would you even try that? What makes you think you could do that? See, we live in a world that's giving us nothing but lies, tearing us down. And if you're here this morning and you're believing that, it's a Christian life of distress. It's not helping you. It's bringing you down. And the psalmist cries out and he says, Lord, I'm in this distress. It's my own deceitful tongue. It's my own deception. It's the lies that I've been believing, not only from our parents, if you wish to say that at some times, but maybe you're listening to the lies of your spouse. Maybe you've been beaten up, ridiculed, laughed at. You realize now I'm in distress. Or maybe they're the lies that you're listening to because Satan has slithered in. He's touched your life and he sent you to counselors to help you. And the counselors that you've gone to see have given you direction you really don't need. Maybe you believe those lies. I'm not sure why you're trusting in God. You've got to pick yourself up. You've got to do this yourself. Your life is only going to be what you make it. You're going to have to be much stronger. You might as well go a whole other new direction. You see, the problem of it is, is that so many people want to share, us, share with us about all this goodness of a life, and yet they omit acknowledging God. They omit Christ and salvation. And they never even mention the power of the Holy Spirit and how he changes. You see, the psalmist begins to cry out here. And not only does he say we need to recognize our dependence on the Lord, he's saying we've got to get through the distress. We've got to be delivered. There's a war that's going on, and it's not just outside. Folks, listen to Jeremiah for just a moment. In chapter 17, verse 9, write it down. He says this, The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? He writes this and he says, I, the Lord, even search the heart and test the mind to give every man accordingly to how he lives. You see, the heart is what's deceitful and the trap that you're in. Don't always blame it on someone else. Realize that you're in situations where people have brought you down. First Corinthians tells us that bad company corrupts good morals. We get it. But sometimes we don't get out of those morals and we get affected by those around us. We could go back to the easy stories of Sodom and Gomorrah, and I won't bore you, but isn't it amazing that when the journey went on down through the Negev and through the valleys, and they had a chance to choose where they wanted to go, oh, we learned the stories that at first they were out from Sodom and Gomorrah, 
Just read a few more chapters, and it wasn't long until they camped outside Sodom and Gomorrah. It wasn't much longer until they moved in the camp of Sodom and Gomorrah. It wasn't long after that they just became one with Sodom and Gomorrah. Who are you becoming one with? Just who have you allowed to lure you away from following Jesus Christ in faithfulness and been detoured into the bad company and the things that corrupt a healthy, maturing relationship with Christ? Paul wrote the same thing as Jeremiah in Galatians 5 when he writes us and says this, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you need to do. There's that war that's raging. The psalmist cries out. He wants to be in repentance. He wants to know that God is there to deliver him. He cries to his God in distress. He reaches out. What he's realizing now is that he must deafen his ears to all the advice given to him in this world below and begin listening to the truths that come from God above. And so look at verse 3. Not only do we have to realize our dependence on the Lord, but listen to this. We must receive whatever the Lord gives us. True repentance is to say it's no longer me in control. Lord, whatever you're going to give me, I will receive. Look at verse 3. He writes it this way. What more shall be given to you? What more shall be done than a deceitful tongue? But a warrior's sharp arrows with the glowing coals of the broom tree. What in the world is he talking about? He's speaking about the desire for the judgment against all the harassment and the deception that's going on, whether it's outside of him or inside of him. It's not just the judgment against those who've deceived us, but Lord, bring judgment against me for what? Deceiving others. Do what it takes to change my life. Do what it takes to make me right. That's what it means by the arrows. Folks, that's what it means by what he's talking about. In some translations, it's the coals of the juniper. What he's talking about is the arrows were constantly made through the coals of the fire. They would heat up the iron and the metal or whatever they had, and they would shape those arrows in a constant bed of coals, constantly ready to make more arrows and to send them. Oh, I want to remind you, according to the psalmist, it's not just the devil that has arrows to shoot at you. It's the Lord God who's constantly making arrows to pierce your life. He's making the arrows to bring conviction just where you need it. No different than when the writer of Hebrews writes and says in Hebrews 4, the word of God is sharper than a what? A two-edged sword. Piercing to the morrow. And it never comes back void. You see, God is in the process. What he is writing here is saying, as the psalmist, I'm crying out to you, God, send those arrows. What else do I need? Show me where my life needs to be cut open. Show me where it needs to be surgically fixed. Show me where my life is in distress. Show me where I'm deceitful and hateful toward others. I want to be on the journey upward, but I need to be changed and so he gives us this writing very quickly when he talks about this in the next verses. Listen to what he says, woe to me. He brings it to the point, woe to me, Lord, that I sojourn in Meshech and I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Folks, not only do we have to realize or recognize our dependence on the Lord, not only do we have to receive whatever the Lord is going to do to us to make it right, but listen to these verses because it says we must refuse to live as wanderers. That's part of repentance. You cannot continue doing things aimlessly. Woe to me. I'm dwelling and sojourning in Meshech. I dwell amongst the tents of Kedar. What is this, folks? As many researchers would tell you, Meshech is like the northern part of the Black Sea or Armenia. It's the far north place of Palestine. It's so far away from Jerusalem. It's as though you're living and wandering, and that's what Qatar is. There are some who truly believe that Qatar, 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 can't get that out. Qatar is the place of Ishmael's second son. The desert people 
that wandered in the wilderness, that were cast out from the beginning. But it's not the place that's important. When he's crying out from Meshach and Kadar, it's because what he's saying is, I am wandering so far from where I need to be, I need help. It's as though I'm living as a wanderer, aimlessly headed nowhere right now. Lord, I'm calling out to you in distress. My life needs to be touched. Send whatever it is that I need because I feel like I'm gaining no ground and I'm not getting any closer to you. The psalm of ascent, crying out. And I wonder about you this morning as the psalmist in a nutshell is simply telling us I'm finding my, play, my life in the wrong place. I realize now, Lord, I have wandered. I have wandered. I find myself in a place of conflict. I find my place absent from those that care. I find my life in a place that no one cares. No way out. I feel like the deserts of Kedar in the land of Meshach. Please bring me back. Bring me back. And so he writes, in order to get out of the valley and get through the desert, you've got to start climbing. You've got to start climbing and ascending. You've got to start heading to the presence of God. Yes, we must recognize our dependence on God. We must receive whatever the Lord gives us. And we must refuse to live as wanderers in a desert far from God. Finally, beginning in verse 6, he challenges us to renew our commitment to climb. Get back on the wall. Get back on the mountain. Get back on the journey. It's an upward climb to Jerusalem. It's an upward climb to be with God. It's an upward journey to experience holiness. It's never going to be easy. You're always going to be tired. And yet God is always there to sustain you. Listen to what he says, verse 6. Too long have I suffered. That's what happens out of the presence of God. I can't do this anymore. They're the words and the cry of distress. It's over. I have no way out. I have no direction to go. I'm in the middle of the desert far north of where I need to be, and I don't even know where to start. Lord, deliver me. Help me. Send whatever I need. Stop me from wandering. And renew my commitment to you. Listen to how he finishes it. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. Because when you're changed with deception, when your life has been brought in to corruption, when others have had the advance on your life, you become one with them, and you begin to love hate more than peace. You become the love distance more than presence. You want to be an outcast more than a part of the body. It's only natural that you find yourself now at war. Not only with others, but with yourself. You see, the psalmist cries out, I am for peace. Do you ever get tired of conflict? Do you ever get tired of always having to argue and to explain and to reiterate and to argue against and to work against? Well, that's what it's like trying to live without God as a Christian. 
the flesh and the spirit are at war. And when God saves you, you're to be with him. It's his spirit that's in your life. And when you try to live in a place of the desert and you try to live in a nomad land, when you try to do it on your own and you're not faithful to the Lord and you have a thousand reasons why you don't need to worship and you don't need Bible study and you don't need fellowship, you don't need to be trained, you don't need to go forward, you've had enough, you realize you need to repent. You need to be brought back. You need to have this renewed commitment to climb. My prayer for you this morning is that God will touch your heart. 2021 is gone. 2020 is gone. Folks, 2019 is gone. How far back do I need to go for you to let go of the things that need to be let go of so that you can go forward and climb? To grow in your walk with Christ. No longer being a wanderer. It's the Hebrew word parapodamus. It's the person who just wanders going nowhere in their life. Do you ever feel like that? You're not a wanderer. You're a disciple. The Greek word for disciples is mathetes. You all know what that is. It's a follower. All a disciple is is one who follows. There is one change to it. You can't be a disciple of yourself. It just doesn't work. The definition of a disciple is someone who follows another. And it just may be this morning that you find yourself in that wilderness full of distress, going nowhere, frustrated and wanting God to deliver you because you have always thought you could be a disciple of yourself. And you can't. You're either for war or for peace. You're either with him or what? Against him. That's what the psalmist is crying out. He finally tells us, almost as an analogy of the early 1800s when the immigrants came flooding to America. Oh, folks, it wasn't for a great religious captivity. America wasn't built on the great Christian principles that everybody who came were longing to love the Lord and only Him. It was built amongst the people who were doing everything they could to get out of a life of oppression and find a life of opportunity. When you swing from one trapeze, you're saying, I'm tired of living for myself in a life of oppression. And I'm ready to a whole new direction of grabbing God by faith and going forward with opportunity. The chance to be with Jesus. Oh, the psalmist finally says, I am for peace and they are for war. Milkamah is the Hebrew word for war, but it's not in reference to only outside. He concludes his entire plea to God of repentance by saying, look at me, folks. I am for peace, but the other is for war. Paul wrote it this way, what my mind wants to do, what my body doesn't do. And what my body does, my mind wishes. Oh, wretched man that I am. Isn't this amazing? Talk about consistency. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me, O oh Lord? And thousands of years earlier, the psalmist says, Woe to me, O oh wretched man that I am. Lord, please deliver me. The same God same Christ, same Spirit. If you're here this morning and you're in an unhealthy place in your life, you're not going to solve it on your own. You're going to continue to wander aimlessly and accomplish nothing. Or you can cry out to God, I'm tired of being at war. I'm ready for peace. Yes, Paul wrote the same thing 
in Romans when he says we have now been justified by faith. Romans 5.1, we have what? Peace with God. Today is the day for those who have not been saved to be saved. To repent. To follow Jesus Christ. And for those of us who have been saved, it's the day to repent and get back in the direction we're supposed to go. To get back in the climb and to come to Christ. Revelation chapter 2, if you remember, to those who have fallen out of love with Jesus, he writes, you need to remember from where you have fallen. Do you remember that? You need to repent of what it is you've done. And you need to return to the one who loves you most. That's Revelation 2. The psalmist says, for those who are out of place, recognize your need for God. Receive whatever he's willing or wanting to give you. Refuse to live as a wanderer. And renew your commitment to God. The journey in a new direction begins with repentance. I encourage you, change your mind to agree with God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the psalmist who would sing about his trials, who would share with others his journey, that he would share the fact that it's an upward climb, it's a constant endurance, it's a race that doesn't end until we get to Jesus. Lord, strengthen us for this journey. Give us a desire in our mind and hearts to want to be with others, to want to share the gospel, to want to endure the, the places we are. But Father, also give us this moldable heart that whatever it is you have for us, we will receive so that we can be delivered and we can have a renewed commitment with you. For no other reason, Lord, than that you would get the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. But if you would just receive Paul's simple benediction, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And God's children said, Amen. Amen. Have a great Lord's Day.